Outlaws riding the free range of generosity, excitement, humor, and a penchant for purloining the picadellos of people everywhere. What are picadellos? They're like the things that we don't want to admit about ourselves. So it's that similar to Piccadilly Circus? Well, that's a location. And I'm not sure of the the origin of the word peccadillos, but it was the closest thing I knew to use a P to make that whole sentence have a kind of percussive perfection, uh, a pleasant pronunciation of... (laughs) A premium (laughs) prolonged... Pop and, and, and prettiness. For pleasantries and silliness. Well, we're waiting for our guest. Do you want to introduce him? Well, yeah. Uh, Bob De Pasquale, uh, the generosity guy, was going to be our, our guest today. And it's bobdepasquale.com if you want to check out um, his website. He is a, an interesting guy. He, he has made generosity his focus for a while. Um, one of the things that he says on his website is that high generosity people are 23% more likely to be satisfied with their lives overall. And that being generous makes everyone's life better. It doesn't matter if you're the giver or the receiver or just an onlooker. It says here that Bob learned this lesson at a very young age. In fact, if it wasn't for some generous acts, Bob likely wouldn't be here today. Well, he's not here today. <laughs> he has dedicated his life to teaching others about the virtues and health benefits of generosity, promoting the giving mindset and making the world a better place. Uh, now, when Bob was given a cancer diagnosis and experienced the tragic events of 9-11 in New York City, in New York City, he thought not only was his life over, but everyone else's too. And so he went from feeling like an invincible 18-year-old to an unworthy victim of life. And what happened in the months and years following was truly miraculous. The acts of generosity. Oh, yay. All right. (laughs) We can't hear you just yet. I I think I was in the wrong room. Oh, we all are at some point in our life. Yeah, I was, I was waiting. I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't right. So, and then I went back. I must have had the old link. Anyway, sorry about that. Here I am. Well, yeah, and we just uh, described what your website, and I read the opening lines, and I was just getting to the part about how when you were gone, had gone from feeling like an invincible 18-year-old to an unworthy victim of life, and what happened in the months and years following was truly miraculous, or was it generous? It's so great to have you like reading through your blog and reading through what you've experienced. It's inspiring. 
and makes me feel warmth in my chest and uh, a desire to go out and give my money away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 that's good. It's not all about the money, but it, it's a good place to start for sure. Yeah. So it's great to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's uh, I, I live in South Florida. It's a beautiful day here. It's not too hot. It's starting to cool off, and uh, I, I can't complain at all. So how about you all? How, how, what's up up there? Well, we're both in Northern California, and it's chilly, but it oh, is I beautiful. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I Are you on family. the east side or the west side of Florida? Uh, well, it's funny you say that. So I'm about as far west as you can go and still be on the east coast of Florida. That's what I like to say. Uh, so oh, if, you take, if you take Fort Lauderdale, you go about 20 miles west out, just, just on the edge of the Everglades is where I'm at. So. so were you affected by that hurricane that hit a couple months ago? You know, actually, we really lucked out, which we usually luck out for some reason in this space, uh, other than Hurricane Andrew, which we even lucked out there, too, because in 92, it kind of twisted overnight and didn't get us too bad. But wow. um, no, yeah, if you were on the southwest side, you got smashed. If you were in the northeast, you got hit hard. But in the southeast, we, we lucked out. So I had a few. I, I like to say I basically had some free palm tree pruning. That's what we got. So, um, yeah, no, no complaints really for us. A little bit of flooding, but that's it. Nice. My palm tree is permanently pruned, as you can see. <laughs> nice. Hey, I like that. Um, Mark and I are both um, enamored with miracles. And in your bio, you say the miraculous things that occurred after. Can mm-hmm. you speak to some of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was 18, I mentioned that I was invincible. Now, I don't know how much time we have and how deep you want me to get into the story, but uh, I really do feel like there were some miraculous things that happened in my life. And so um, I, I was going up to college to play sports, to play football and get an education. I was bo- I was actually born in New York, and but spent uh, only about three years there. And I moved to Florida when I was just a kid with my parents. They, they chased my grandparents down. They were the outside of my grandparents. They're the only other people that that moved out of New York. Okay, this Uh, is a stereotypical question. Are you of Jewish? No. Um, So my family, my father's family, immigrated from uh, got off the boat from Italy in Ellis Island. There, and my mom's family is actually from uh, Nordic descent. So uh, we are Protestants, Protestant Christians, and. I got plenty of Italian in me. I got a little bit of Polish, but uh, I'm all all over Europe. All right. So it's not just Jewish elders who leave New York for Florida. <laughs> no, no. Thank you for dispelling that trope, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, all right. Let's get back to the miracle, Bob. Right. It's, it's elders of, of, of any faith or any, uh, you know, history, I think. But anyway, so I moved to New York. I'm going to take on the world, going to get my education, I guess, play sports, you know, spend more time with my family that I didn't know. And I was in training camp before my freshman year of college there playing football. And I had what I thought was a groin injury. Now, have you guys ever injured your groin before? Like pulled a muscle? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know your experience, but for me, it was like, I mean, I didn't even know what a groin muscle was. And I thought it was the most debilitating thing in the world. I mean, you can't stand, walk, twist, sit up, lay down. It just, it, it affects everything. It seems like at least. And so I would do this exercise to rehab what I thought was a pulled groin muscle. 
I'd sit on this three-wheeled stool in this college training room, which is, you know, might have been 50 feet long and 30 feet wide. It was a big room, different than like a high school training room. And part of the exercise is basically just to dodge people, to shimmy across the room on this stool, uh, I guess strengthening the muscles of my hip, whatever. And one day, my, our head trainer stands up, and he, he was a small guy, and he would have to stand on this box to get everyone's attention, you know, like hundred, literally 100 people in there in the morning screaming and sound going on and, you know, getting treatment before practice at like 6 in the morning. And and I, it seemed like it got dead silent. I don't know if it, this is the only part of the story that I might be stretching a little bit. I felt like it got dead silent. And he screams like, Bobby, you need to get back on the field. And he essentially calling me a weakling in front of all my new teammates and coaches. And it was a shot to my 18-year-old ego that I thought was invincible. And I, I said, Rick, I mean, I had a more private meeting with him. I was like, Rick, listen, something's not right. Like, I just a pulled muscle. It's been a week. Like, I, I, need, I know I need to get back out on the field. I'm trying to prove myself here. And he's like, all right, let me send you to the doctor. So over the next couple of weeks, I had all these tests. I, I mean, I, and I'm 18 now, so I'm technically an adult. But I'm driving around Long Island by myself, going to all these doctor's tests, filling out paperwork. I mean, I'm in these offices for hours on end, you know, with insurance questions, all this stuff that I have no clue how to answer. And then they stick me in a machine and I get a test, whether it's MRI, sonogram, ultrasound, CAT scan, you name it. I had every test in the book. And finally, I had my parents were supposed to come up for my first ever game. Now, we knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point, but I had a test this day that they were flying up to New York from Florida. And I expected to be in this test in this office for a couple hours, like like had become the protocol over the past the previous couple of weeks. And I, I walked in and within two minutes they they brought me in. I didn't have to fill out any paperwork. They said, Bob, Bobby, come in, come into I sat down at the doctor's uh, office there, and he comes in thirty seconds later, sits down and said, All right, Bobby, um, just wanna let you know you have cancer. And I was like, What? I mean, and my jaw hit the desk and I, I could not believe it. And he's like, I know you're probably in shock, but we're going to hook you up with an oncologist. And I'm like, I don't even know what an oncologist is at this point. And you, you're free to go. So I said, all right. So I walked out of the office in complete shock. And I kid you not, the moment I walked out of the, the building, my phone rang and it was my mom. And she was expecting to get my voicemail or something because I would probably be in the appointment. And she's like, oh, hey, you know, how'd the appointment go? And I was like, uh, about that. <laughs> so I had to tell her, I said, mom, the, the doctor said I have cancer. And I could just feel like the air come out of the car that they were driving in. My, my mom was like screaming, but saying nothing all at the same time. And the only thing I could hear was my dad, who was in the other seat in the back seat of the car that they were in. And he's like, Susan, Susan, what's wrong? Like he could tell something was wrong, too. And uh, my mom's name is Susan. And so we met back at my uncle's house, who still lived up in New York. And we said a few prayers, shed some tears, and we're just kind of staring at each other for the rest of the night. It was it was the eeriest night of my life. So fast forward a couple of days, and it's now Saturday. And that was the day that my first game was supposed to be. Obviously, I wasn't playing in it, but that was the day of the game. And my uncle's best friend comes over his house. And we've never met this guy before. His name was Tim. And... He comes up to my parents at like just meeting them and hands him, hands them his keys and says, Susan and Bob, here's my keys. You can take my car, you know, for as long as you could possibly need it. I can only imagine what you're going through with your son right now. And they were just baffled. Like they couldn't believe this, this act of generosity. 
And uh, he was there for maybe 15 minutes, said goodbye to my aunt, my uncle, and he was gone. That was it. Met Tim O'Brien first time and never, you know, didn't see him. He just left. So I was, we're like, wow, what, what a nice thing, this guy. So a few days go by and it's Monday, my first ever college class. I, I had gotten connected with my oncologist and he said, you got to go to class. I don't, we don't know exactly how we're going to treat you. Uh, we have a, you have an extremely aggressive form of cancer. Um, it's a good thing we found you because you probably wouldn't be here in a couple months. I, I feel like it's very curable, but we have to come up with a plan. Uh, during this period of time, though, you can't just wallow in your sorrows. You got to still go to class. You got to have something to live for. But so may I ask, Bob? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you said earlier, like a growing injury, you can't move. It's hard to move. So mm-hmm. you're being told to go to class. Like, mm-hmm. what is that? You're in pain constantly, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm in pain. So I'm, I'm pretty much icing my my groin area and and limping around. I mean, I could walk. Uh, it wasn't, in fact, it was probably easier to walk than it was to sit down and stand up and roll around in a wheelchair or something. Um, so I could move, uh, and I would, and I kind of shimmied my way, uh, into class on Monday morning, my first ever college class, but good question. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, I just looked like probably like an athlete who was injured. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, I didn't look like I was suffering and, so I, I was still icing the area and just, you know, walked into class, had, had my first ever college class, was totally normal. You know, we went over a syllabus and I left. That was it. Took Tim's car, went to some more doctor's appointments. And uh, the second, my second ever day of class was that Tuesday. And on this I'll never forget. I walk into class and, uh, you know, the, the teacher's making all these announcements and we probably got out of class a little bit early because, you know, it was the first day. And I went to the cafeteria and I wanted to get something to eat before I had to go hop back in Tim's car, meet my parents, and go to some other appointments. And um, I'm sitting there I'm eating a breakfast burrito, and I'm watching the news. Now I don't know the news station in New York. I, I you know, I just I had just moved up there. Now, do you do you remember those bracket type of tube televisions? Not not a flat screen like the one behind me, but but one that would like hang from the yeah. corner of the ceiling yep, of the wall. Yep, yep, yep. They still have them in hospitals, I think. Yeah, there you go. So I'm watching this small television, probably squinting, even though my 18-year-old eyes are pretty healthy at that point. And I'm watching the news, and all of a sudden, a plane hits one of the Twin Towers in Manhattan, which is not too far from where I am. I'm like, well, that's what a horrible accident. So I call my dad, and I said, Dad, are you watching the news? What? He's like, yeah, yeah, this is terrible. And we're talking for maybe a minute or whatever, and all of a sudden, the second plane hits the other tower. And my dad's like, whoa. That's not an accident, Bobby. You better you better get back in the car and, and come home to your uncles. So I don't even know if I finished the burrito. I hightailed it out of there, got in the car, and I'm driving. Now, it would typically take me 15 minutes to drive from school to my uncle's house. Well, subsequently, after all this happened, I actually have a master's degree in broadcast journalism, and I worked in radio for a, a while. I will tell you, though, as much as I love radio, I will never, ever in my life listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. I was in the car listening to the whole, all the reporting of what was going on with 9-11 and and the tragedy with burning towers like deep in the distance as I'm driving uh, to my uncle's house from uh, on Long Island there. And I get to my uncle's neighborhood. Wait, are you saying it took nine hours to get to? Yeah, it took me nine hours to to what would typically be a 15-minute drive. 
Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. And I ran out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood. (laughs) I easily could have ran out of gas, like, on the highway. But thankfully, I ran out of gas in his neighborhood. So there's the first miracle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, that that I just had just barely enough gas. And we push my uncle's car into his driveway. Wow. And or we, pu- uh, we pushed the car into the driveway. And my aunt is hysterical because my uncle was on business the night before and was supposed to fly home that morning. And she's besides herself. And my parent and my parents are already like, don't know what's going on with me and everything. And we're sitting there around the, the table. And we're like looking at each other like, this is crazy. What's going on in the world right now? And then finally, it's like eight o'clock p.m. And my uncle calls. And he was in Denver and he says, Hey guys, uh, I, I know you probably have no idea what's going on. I'm really sorry. The phones have been out, but I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. You probably think I could have been in one of those planes. We don't really know what it is. I'm hoping to catch a flight home tomorrow, but thank God I'm okay. And my aunt was like, oh, okay. And he's like, but, but guys, before I let you go, I just, I got to tell you some news. So Tim, my best friend was in the towers this morning and he died. Oh, fuck. And, we we all kind of looked at each other and said, "Wow, that that is and what a what a horrible tragedy." I, we just met this guy. He did the most generous thing for us that I think we've ever seen. And it turns out that Tim he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, which is an investment bank. They still do they're still in business today, but they lost every hundreds of people and on their staff in the in the Twin Towers that morning in nine eleven in two thousand and one. And they would donate office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis. My uncle, my cousin has this disease. And so Tim, who was one of the higher ups, plus, you know, the whole company is known for being a very, very generous organization. So they would give this office space to free from my uncle's foundation. And typically no one from the foundation would be in the office that early, uh, thankfully, uh, except for Tammy. Now, Tammy is the number one kind of go-to person for the foundation at the time. And she actually was uncharacteristically late that morning. I mean, never late. Tammy's always there in the morning. And miraculously, she was late that morning, was caught in the subway underneath the tower. And she escaped. Thankfully, she's okay. But the stories that she'll tell you are, you know, probably way more drastic than mine. But um, it just goes to show you that timing in life is, is amazing. And so for, so since that period of time in my life, and, and there's more stories, I'll be glad to go into it, but um it, it just shows me that, you know, we have a limited time on earth. We, you know, we don't know when it's going to be over. Uh, and so since then, I've always tried to be as generous as I can possibly be to people because uh, including Tim and a, a, a whole slew of other forces and things that happened during that period of time in my life showed me that um, generosity really is the way that we should be acting towards other people in the world. And your diagnosis and disease progression obviously was halted because here you are today. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more detail about what the diagnosis was, what type of cancer it was, and what type of treatment you had? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it was testicular cancer. Maybe you could have guessed it by the groin injury. And it had actually spread up into my abdomen. So I had some lymph nodes up in my abdo- abdominal area. And so uh, treatment-wise, oh, first of all, I had to have surger- surgery uh, to remove the, you know, the source of the disease there. They call it an orchiectomy. Who even knows what that is? Um, but I had to have that done. And then the doctor said, you know, we could give you radiation potentially in specific areas to try to zap some of those lymph nodes. But I'm not really sure. This type of cancer is very aggressive, and it could be in other places. So he said, we're just going to hit you really hard with chemotherapy. And I was a young, I mean, I was 18-year-old. I was healthy otherwise. I was in good shape, you know, athletic. 
And so he developed this treatment plan that I would go for chemotherapy five straight days a week. Now, treatments have changed. You know, other people that I know, but, you know, most people do not have chemo, intensive chemotherapy, like multiple bags of cisplatin and the other drugs and many, many bags of fluid to, to flush it out of your system. But I would be there for hours uh, in the morning and I would go for five straight days. And then uh, for five, then after those five days, for 10 days after that, I would have to give myself these shots, which is a whole nother story. But that was called Nupigen to raise my white blood cell count because your immune system gets zapped by the chemo as well. And then I did that four times. And so, they, and they would be, so I, would, I would have five days of treatment, 10 days of, of giving myself these shots. Uh, and then I would have the, the balance of the following week, uh, just basically off and recovering, let my body recover. For, and then they would hit me again. So I did that four times. Wow. So I had 20 rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, I guess that's 40 shots and plenty of other bags of IVs and water and um, really, really. Did this all start in the fall of 2001? Yeah, it all started in the fall of 2001. And, and, and crazy story. Uh, so after 9-11, uh, New York City was, I mean, public transportation was, it was very, very hard to get around. And you couldn't drive, just drive a car through. So God bless Tim, but if we had to do anything in New York City, which we had to do a couple, we couldn't even use his car for a period of time there. So there's some crazy stories of us trying to get, you know, literally run through New York City in some cases uh, to get to different places on time to get my uh, appointments done. Finally, they came up with it when he figured out the treatment plan. Uh, thankfully, it was on Long Island where I got treated, so I didn't have to go into New York City for my chemo. And you maintained your attendance to college that fall or not? Yes, I did. I, 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 did, I dropped a few classes because I it just, there wasn't enough time in the day between my treatments. Um, but I still got enough credits that I was able to catch up from those few that I missed throughout the next three and a half years. And I ended up graduating in four years. And then you graduated with a degree in journalism and communications. So it's interesting. So that's another story. Um, my, my major was television video broadcasting. And I had a, my minor was going to be speech communication and rhetorical studies. And I usually don't get into this too much, not because I don't want to, because it doesn't normally come up, but you ask a good question. I, I had to switch my major, me and a, a few of my teammates, because the department head of the television video uh, school had a problem with us missing a couple, a couple uh, courses, not even a full course, just a couple classes when we had away games. And so there was a big fight. It was actually a big fiasco. And finally, uh, we were just encouraged to you know, switch our major. So I switched my major to speech communication, rhetorical studies, um, rounded out a minor in psychology my final semester because I had enough electives and free classes. Like, oh, these are kind of interesting classes. And then when I went to grad school is when I studied broadcast journalism. That's where I got my master's at University of Miami, which is in, uh, down in Florida, obviously. And then, then you became an AM radio host and... <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's a, while I was in grad school, I actually worked at the local sports radio station, and that's how I started my career. And I would work, uh, I would work some really strange hours, to be honest with you, to, just to get involved and and get into the business. And I loved it. I actually, I, I was my passion. I really enjoyed it. But I ended up getting recruited into the financial industry only two years in, um, and that's an interesting story too. But. I uh, love my career now. I love it, but I still have a passion for communication. Well, and one of the things I noticed on your website is that you speak about generosity, which leads people into this idea of how to be um, 
a source as opposed in, in, in life, being a source of generosity. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes your objective in personal finance. And for those of us who are listening, but not actually seeing the broadcast, you have a slide up behind you showing your book, personal Mm -hmm. finance. And there's some, there's three, three letter um, designations at the bottom of the book. Mm -hmm. What are those designations and what do they mean? Great. Thank, thanks for asking the question and, and mentioning the book, Personal Finance in a Public World. Uh, so over the past, man, 13 years now, <laughs> I've been in the industry. And those designations are the first one there is uh, CFP. It stands for a Certified Financial Planner. So that's a comprehensive designation that covers all the different uh, aspects of personal finance and, you know, and, and managing your money if, you, if you're in a family as well. Uh, the term personal finance kind of bugs me a little bit sometimes because I think finance is way more than personal. It's actually, it's familial, but, um, so that's what the CFP is. That's, you know, they do advertising. A lot of people these days are, are becoming more familiar with what CFP stands for. The second designation is chartered advisor in philanthropy. Uh, and that's, that's focusing on helping families be generous. And as we kind of alluded to earlier in the show, it's, about the financial aspect of it, yes. I mean, we have a deep understanding of how tax law works and how charitable gifting is, uh, but it's more than just the money. It's about the mindset as well. So that's why I love what we call the CAP, C-A-P, we call it the CAP. And then finally, CKA stands for Certified Kingdom Advisor, um, and that's that's a, a designation put out by an organization called Kingdom Advisors. Um, they're a faith-based organization uh, that tries to help uh, Christian families manage their money wise. And uh, with wisdom. And so I I try to incorporate any of the things that I've learned from those designations um, into the planning that I do, as long as as long as they're relevant to the people that we're working with. So the through line that I'm experiencing in all of this is that we live in an abundant world. And then when we adopt the the posture of being the means by which generosity is dispersed into the world mm-hmm. it creates a kingdom of riches of mm-hmm. life experience would you say that you agree with that yeah greg that's a great way to put it in fact can i put that on the website <laughs> that's mark <laughs> oh sorry mark no worries uh, i uh but I, that's awesome i think i think that's terrific i think what you have um what you said really kind of wraps it up the way i look at it is this uh you know there's money i, I see money as a tool I think it's a very important tool in our society. I don't want to minimize it whatsoever, but it's strictly a tool. It's not an end to a mean. Out of the thousands of families that I've worked with over the years, none of them has ever come to me and said, Bob, thank God you've got me more money. Now my life is complete. Uh, normally what they say is, Bob, I'm a little concerned about my money. I want you to help me manage it wisely because I want to be able to do these things. Spend time with my family, vacation, support charitable causes, start my own business, retire safely, whatever it is. They bring these, they bring these concerns to them. And a lot of times their relationship with money has something to do with it. Um, but in the long run, it's ultimately their relationship with the other things in life. And the people who have defined what's most important to them, I feel like have the best chance of finding fulfillment in life. Uh, you know, there can be happy moments for all of us throughout the years, but ultimately, can we find joy and fulfillment? And that's not an event. Um, that's a that's a state or scenario in life. So if you can identify the things that are most important, I feel like just working on them is, I hate to use a cliche, but just working on the things that are most important to you, I feel like is half the battle. Because if you're involved in those things, you feel like you're making progress, uh, it makes you feel more fulfilled in your lot in life. 
earlier in the broadcast, I said it felt like I wanted to give my money away. And mm-hmm. you said, well, money's one thing, and that's great. And what occurs to me is this idea of generosity of spirit, which in my mind, in my heart, transcends the idea of material wealth. So mm-hmm. I'd like it if you would speak a little bit about what generosity of spirit means to you. I love the word transcend also um, because it passes beyond just the financial aspects. And so generosity of spirit specifically to me, and I think everyone's spirit is a little bit different. So my encouragement by the, by the talks that I do, by the podcast that I'm on, um, by the, the, broad, the other broadcasts that I'm involved in, uh, is not to impart my values upon people, uh, but it's to help them realize that the values that they have can be giving for other people as well. So generosity of spirit or a generous mindset um, if you're an organization and you have a generous culture, I think it makes people want to be involved with your organization or you more. And it's proven. I did a lot of research for my book. So the book is entitled Personal Finance in a Public World. Uh, so it's certainly about money. But spoiler alert, I ended up realizing that people's relationship with other people uh, is by far the thing that gives them the most joy and fulfillment. And so generosity of spirit helps you build the relationship with other people. Because I don't know about you, but when, when people are generous to me, I kind of want to be around them. <laughs> I want to interact with those people. So it just makes total sense. What was the gentleman's name who gave the keys to your parents right at the beginning? Tim, Tim O'Brien. Tim. Do you think that was the seed that was planted in you that where you thought you experienced a simple Mm -hmm. act of generosity that transformed your life? Mm -hmm. And in this gentleman's life was kind of one of his last acts, which maybe to him, it was a small thing. Mm -hmm. So, so Greg, the, planting the seed is a good way to put it because there's other things that happened even during that period of time. Uh, But definitely since then, generous things that have happened to me before. Uh, But that was the seed. And I always think of that period of time, that five or so day period uh, from the the moment the doctor told me that I have cancer to the moment my uncle told me that Tim died on that night on Tuesday, that five or so six day period there. I think of that, and this is not a gross exaggeration. This is the absolute truth. I think of that period of my life every day, every single day, whether it's for five seconds when I first wake up or in a conversation like this where we might talk about it for an hour. I think about it every day. And yes, that that one moment in the middle there where Tim gave us the car, gave my parents the keys, yes, that started it. And so since then, and it hasn't always been easy, it probably took me, uh, well, Mark mentioned, you know, asked earlier. So it ended up taking me probably four months to recover physically or be at least be done with my treatment. And then it took me another probably six months by the end of the, my freshman year of college to really work through like mentally what happened, like just to take a breath and, and sit back. But it took years to get through the emotions. And so, yes, I think about what Tim did. And that was the start, the impetus for me feeling the desire to be more generous. Uh, but it's it's taken a lot. You know, th- that was just the beginning. It took a lot, a lot of time after that to kind of work through all those emotions. Can you speak to some of those challenging times and what were they? Were they like emotions of anger or other elements that take away from generosity or were they aspects of your life that were challenging being generous? So, well, first of all, the the first thing that all that hit me pretty quickly after that 
right around the time, the holiday season, because, you know, four months later or so, uh, if you do the math, after 9-11, that's the holiday season. And I was able to go home <clears throat> for that. And there were people that I hadn't seen that basically thought I was dead. I mean, they, they were like, Bob, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And, you know, how new, news didn't travel. Like Facebook wasn't around back then, so it wasn't the same, right? So people didn't really know all of what was going on because my mom, she worked for our friends at the time, so she stayed in New York the whole time and tried to remotely work, which was barely nothing at that point, and my dad would fly back and forth. So most people didn't even know what was going on. So I had this moment where I thought, I was like, wow, all these people were really concerned that I was gone, and it hit me that I could have died. Like I, I, I thought I was going to be the greatest cancer patient in the world. I drank the amount of water I was supposed to to the ounce. I went to bed at the exact time, set my alarm to wake up at the right time, went to my classes, ate the, all the foods I was supposed to, none of the foods I wasn't. So in my mind, I was in this you know, robotic, I'm going to be the best cancer patient that could possibly ever be mode. It didn't hit me until I, I got back there. And what I thought was this, the reason why I got treated by the doc, the oncologist that I did was because my cousin so not my cousin with cystic fibrosis, but his sister. So my other cousin, her friend, and they're 10 or so years younger than me. So if I was 18, they were, you know, less than 10. In the elementary school, whatever grade they were in, uh, her best friend's dad was an oncologist. And he didn't typically treat testicular cancer and people my age. A lot of the people he was working with had I hate to say it, but even worse forms of cancer, even more aggressive or deadly, and they were older and struggling. So I would go into their office, and the only reason why he decided to treat me, because it would take months to be treated by Dr. Arena, but because there was a family connection, he was willing to treat me. He said, you know what? We're going to bring you in. I really don't even have any room. I'm going to put you in the side room. And I, so I didn't even have a room in the main like spot where everyone, like in the, in the chemo hall, if you will, if you can picture a bunch of people sitting up uh, you know, together getting treated. And I didn't even have, I was basically in a closet and he, he, closet. <laughs> he forced me in there. And I think to some degree it was good because I wasn't mentally around. I mean, most people who are probably dying. And so there were some blessings to that curse, but ultimately I, I'm telling you the story because this was one of the challenges for me when I thought about this later that what I had been, I wasn't cured. I could tell you another story about being officially cured, but I was disease free at that point. All the tumors had shrunk. Everything was gone. The surgery had gone well. The, the, the chemo worked and my doctor was fully convinced that I was going to be okay. So I, I felt like I was going to live. And I, what hit me, Greg, was this amazing feeling of guilt. And I was like, I, I felt, I thought to myself, I was like, wow, I powered through this chemo th- session and I didn't, I never suffered. Like in my mind, it was like, I didn't suffer at all. When looking back, I suffered, but I was like, what I went through was nothing compared to what some of those other people were going through. And most of them are probably not alive anymore. So what did I do to deserve? I'm not a generous person. I'm not a Tim O'Brien who's going to give my car away and all the other things come to find out since then that I've learned that he did after talking with his family. Um, I felt really, really guilty. So that's one thing. That was a big struggle, and that was a tough one to get through for a while uh, for me to feel that. I feel much different about it now, but I, I struggled with it. I, I had survivor's guilt, if you've heard of that term before. Um, yeah. Uh, and, I, I mean, I got other things, too. I, I can go into more things. That was probably the one that hit me the most. Um, I struggled with uh, – there's 
Um, there, there's a couple things related to, uh, you know, like academically trying to figure out, um, you know, where I was and what, what, like what, what I wanted to study and what my purpose was. I remember sitting there spending some nights where I'm doing projects or studying or thinking about tests and I'm just physically exhausted from trying to get back into shape to, to go play sports again. But then all of my mental energy was spent on thinking about what happened to me. And it was very, very hard to concentrate and study. Uh, thankfully, I did get through it all, and I, I struggled that first semester. It was harder. Believe it or not, my classes, now they weren't necessarily harder in, in concept, but it was much harder to go to school when I was done with my chemo than actually that semester when I was going through it, interestingly. so. Wow, what an amazing journey that you've been on to, to arrive at this place. Um, there's a couple of questions I'm going to ask next. The first one is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's also somewhat serious. Mm-hmm. When we understand that the root-level inspiration behind Burning Man is this idea of a gift economy, the question comes up for me, have you ever thought about or gone to Burning Man, and why or why not? So I've, I've heard of this. I had a friend of mine on Twitter, a pretty active on Twitter, and he just went to Burning Man. When it, was, well, it couldn't have been more than a month or two ago, right. the, the most recent one. And so he was telling me all about it. And honestly, I haven't even – I want to spend more time talking to him about it. But he said he was just, like, exhausted after, the, after he came back and he, he didn't have a chance. But he said it was all about gifting. And so, yeah, I've thought about it. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm cool checking anything out. I, I'm all about a, uh, having a giving spirit as well. The thing is, he said he went there and a lot of people were giving him, like, tangible things. And he didn't have anything tangible to give. And I was like, well, I respect you, man, because, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, I don't even like tangible. I I shouldn't say that. That's a bad way to say it. I have very, very few tangible gifts that are super meaningful to me. What's meaningful to me are the connections, the relationship, and the diversity of thought. So I'm sure you can get that at Burning Man, too. So I haven't ruled it out, but I know it's not until next year. So I got some time. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um the other thing that I noticed uh, is that in your September 6th blog mm-hmm. about comedy, you mentioned that you have a secret desire to host Saturday Night Live one day. And I'm Sorry. wondering, what's funny about that? <laughs> what's funny about me hosting it? Uh, probably because all my, my family would look at me and like, okay, this is crazy. Why, <laughs> well, why would they about there? He's not that funny. But what could be more generous than laughter? That you know what? How ironic is that? That's a great point, man. I, so that's a good one. We I can get on there and I could absolutely do some skits about. I mean, I could tell you some funny stories about what happened to me. If they want to talk about uh, sperm banking in New York City, the, the three days after nine eleven, uh, then you, I'm all I'm your man. So <laughs> just that line: sperm <laughs> banking in New York City after nine eleven. That's yeah. hilarious. That's another right. book. <laughs> Yeah, that's another book. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. So do you but fear? Right. Do you fear cancel culture or blowback about your humor? What's the thing that keeps you from showing up in your full expression of um, the silly? Well, I definitely don't don't feel can't fear cancel culture. I mean, I know what it is, and, and I think we're all kind of aware of it at this point. But I really have nothing to hide, and so I already know I've gotten enough affirmation from loved ones in my family that. If some people can't cancel me, I still know there's people who will still want me on. So I don't fear it at all. And I also believe that I think I think our genuine experiences 
are one of the most valuable things to provide lessons for people. And that's part of the generosity. I think, I think we owe it to people to share who we are. And you could argue, and I touch on it a lot in my book about how the internet is designed to attract our attention, regardless of, you know, if if it's genuine or not. So we do need to be careful there. But personally, um, I, I can't say that I'm a hundred percent genuine all the time on the internet, but I'm pretty active, especially Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And I try, I try my best, uh, to put forth me specifically what I believe in as much as I possibly can out there. Um, and the internet, social media, you know, the new media of today, you, we can say they're good, they're bad. They're good for kids. They're bad for kids. They waste our time. They give us who knows. All I can tell you is that it is a tool, just like money in our society, that if we want to, we can use it for good. So I have another question, Greg, if you'll allow me. Um, You you know, you have a master's in broadcast journalism, right? Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, you got it. And and then you started out in sports. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is behind the trend that has um, football players patting themselves on the butt less and less on TV? <laughs> I love that one, but you know what? I feel really bad. I would be out of play. I would probably get cut from the team because I was definitely a butt patter. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. That's that's really funny. You know what? I think you know if you go back to, to so when the the Seahawks and the Broncos played a couple, I don't know, it must have been two or three months early in the season. Now there's a video of Geno Smith grabbing Russell Wilson's. Wilson's butt and it was getting all this pub and it was funny, but I'm thinking, man, we've gone, we've probably gone a little bit too far for over publicizing this. Um, I'll tell you what though, they're the kids of these days. Cause I've had the opportunity to coach some younger kids. It's definitely, it's, it's definitely a no, no. It's definitely like, okay, that's not, that's not cool anymore, which. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. You know? And do you think that men are touch starved with each other? Especially masculine, you know, straight men who are into sports. Um, you mean touch starved as a result of today? Like we're not affectionate. Or? We're not af- affectionate enough with each other. Uh, it wasn't the case for me when I was younger, for sure. When I was playing sports, I would say now. No, I mean, I give my I, I give my boys a big bro hug. So I don't I don't think so. Personally, I think maybe that could be the case. I could see that being an issue because I do think I don't know if you're into the if you're into the love languages. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I you know I'm starting to learn a little bit more about it. And I think my wife would 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 want me to, but I would say I think I think men still need positive touch and affection. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. So yeah, I could see it being the case. I don't I don't feel that in my life, but I could see that being the case for sure. That's a, that's a funny, but that's a, that's actually a really deep question. I have a question for you. Um, from one of your titles, I believe you're a man of Christian faith. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, sir. All right. So it seems like it would have been very easy to be angry at God, fallen into this um, victim mentality with mm-hmm. what you experienced in this you know, pretty much it was a 24 hour period of Mm -hmm. you have cancer and nine 11 and you weren't just, you were in the midst of it. So how was there a challenge in that where you were like, why me sort of the job scenario from the Bible? Like why me God? 
Well, as I kind of described earlier, the why me ended up being, you know, why was I lucky enough to survive? Right, right. Um, but while I was going through it, honestly, and this is, I mean, no pun, or pun intended, this is the God's honest truth. Uh, while I was going through it, for, there was some amazing feeling of confidence. Like I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to kick cancer in the butt and, and it's not going to handle me. I think when my doctor told me he was confident in the, in what could be done. So to answer your question at the time, no, but I've certainly thought about stuff since then. I've also had some, some other like lingering health effects of digestion and autoimmune diseases with, with the motility in my digestive system that I think there's no proof. It may be a result of that. And there's been some long nights where I've said, you know, God, I'm really mad at you right now. Um, but I, but interestingly enough, I think some of those emotions and feelings of mine towards God uh, have led to probably the most faithful times in my life. And I think those challenges really provide growth. So what were the healing thoughts that helped heal the guilt of surviving? Uh, it was talking with people about what happened to me. Uh, as you can tell, I like to talk. I mean, maybe the broadcasting thing has something to do with it, or maybe that's a result of my desire to communicate. Uh, but... I I didn't think that that was something that really needed to be shared with people that much. And I, you know, I didn't have a, it was, I mean, I'm an only child. <laughs> I like to say that my parents gave up after me. <laughs> They're like, all right, that's enough of those. Well, you know, <laughs> we don't want any more. Um, so it was just me and my parents. And sadly, uh, my parents ended up getting divorced not too long after, after all this happened, because I think that conflict kind of made them concentrate so much on me and not, on each other. And by the way, that's some advice for, for people who, you know, have a young person who's sick to still work on your relationship. But um, I, the reason why I say that is because um, the, the, the guilt and the feeling that, you know, I, I, I survived, I should have talked about it more. And because my parents were kind of like, I knew that they were dealing with their own thing and I didn't have a significant other at the time. Um, I had some friends, but you know, I think it was kind of uncomfortable, especially talk, talking about getting one of your testicles cut off. Like, <laughs> that's not a fun conversation with people. So it didn't, it, it, I didn't have anyone to talk about it with. But once I did, once I opened up and started talking about it a little bit more, I think that allowed me to realize how all the other people in my life, um, I had something to give them. And so my gain was also the gain of other people, going back to the generosity aspect. So that was really important for me. How has generosity played out in your immediate family with your wife? And you have two sons, did you say? No, I have no son. I'm, I'm childless. Child, okay. Partially so, because of my disease. Okay. So the, it's youth that you're coaching then that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's needless to say the sperm banking in New York City after 9-11 didn't end up working. Um, but it's still it's still a funny story. Oh, so that uh, was your personal deposit. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I So the doctor, he knew. I mean, he knew I was an 18-year-old. He's like, listen, I don't know exactly how we're going to treat you, but one thing you got to do is you you got to get some sperm on, on deposit, bro. <laughs> That's what he said to me. And I was like, all right, well, let's do it. And then, uh, like I said, long story. We're more than happy to tell that, too. But, um, yeah, it, it ended up years, years later. Talk about a disappointment. Um, they unfroze it. And my wife went through all the stuff that a woman has to go through to get to do in vitro fertilization. And, uh, she came out with flying colors that, that they extracted more eggs, like literally 10 times as many eggs as the average woman when they do the extraction. So my wife's super fertile and it ended up all my sperm that was frozen for all those years and all the money, speaking of money, all the money we paid to have oh, keep it frozen didn't work out. But 
we are heavily involved with young people. My wife is a kindergarten teacher and she's, she coaches the sports teams at the school she works at. And I've also had the opportunity to coach some other teams that we mentor um, going back to the, uh, to our faith. We mentor a lot of the uh, high school and college students at our church. So um, I've spent a lot of time with young people and I love sports. So coaching is a, is a passion of mine. I, I don't ever want to do it professionally. In fact, I got asked to by one of my former uh, coaches a long time ago after college, but I, I turned him down and, and I, I've thought back, would it be cool if I was coaching, but that's a lot of hours and a lot of work. You know, what occurs to me is you seem like a very light, happy person. And you, you've mentioned numerous challenges in your life that any one of them could bring a person down and they just stay there. It seems that this um, choice of generosity has helped bring lightness and joy into your life. 100%. I'm not always positive. I'll be the first to admit. My wife will tell you I have a temper. Um, but I do know that those times when I'm feeling frustrated and feeling feeling angry, uh, I know that they only have a short, a short time span. Uh, because if I think about all the things that I do have in my life and the fact that I have a life, I mean, I almost wasn't around. So I'm thankful just to be alive. So it's easy when I wake up in the morning, I always spend, uh, it, it may seem like nothing. And some people might tell you you need to do it for a half hour. I don't have the patience for that, to be honest with you. But I spend probably a minute of just like gratitude time. I wake up, thank God or whoever I want to thank that I'm alive. Uh, I open my eyes the next day and I get an opportunity to do something cool. And so um, that gift of life is powerful for me. And I told you, I think about the whole situation with Tim all the time. And so absolutely, the the idea and thought of generosity, just the thought of it is exciting to me. Um, and I wouldn't say it's always been. I think you have to work towards that. It's 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 kind of like a skill that you got to work at. You have to practice that thought. Um, you know, a couple of years after, you know, all that happened. So in 2003, in that area of my life later in college, I always thought like I need to be generous, but it was hard. And I, it's taken some time to get here, but here I am. And, and generosity, uh, like I said, is a mindset, not an event. Is it possible that you've branded yourself as the generosity guy to, to as in part to remind you that that's your choice? You are a smart man. Yes, it's 100% cathartic. Yeah, well, th th I didn't do it for 100% cathartic reasons. But it is very, very good. It, it, it reminds me consistently, you know, so when I have to speak to a group or address a, uh, an organization and I say, I'm the generosity guy, I know that I'm living it. And, and there's probably some days where if I didn't remind myself, I wouldn't be as effective as I normally am. So, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So also on your website, there's an article where you say that emotional um, – wealth is more important than financial wealth. Could you speak a little bit about why that's true for you? Yeah, I alluded to earlier all the families that I have worked with, and not one of them ever thanked me for making them more money. Some of them have thanked me for helping them with some really troubling budget issues. Uh, so I think there's a certain level of, of comfort that you have to have. But in the long run, uh, emotional wealth is much more important than, than financial wealth. It doesn't mean that financial wealth isn't important. It means that it's not as important. How would you define emotional wealth? I think it's feeling comfortable with the resources that you have and, and, and having a belief. So this is the key. 
I think a lot of people will tell you feeling comfortable with the resources you have is important. They might describe that as financial freedom. Uh, but I would say, uh, uh, or, uh, or life freedom, if it's not directly related to finances. But for me, it's the belief that what you have is capable of making the world a better place or making someone's world a better place. And I always say this, and I heard, I heard it once at a concert when I was, I think I was in high school. So this was even before all this happened to me and it meant nothing to me at the time. It means everything to me now. And that is, you may not change the world, but you may change the world for one. And I strongly believe that. So I, I think if, if you are comfortable with the resources that you have and believe that you can use them, and if that could be money, it could be your influence. It could be your talents, your gifts, your skills. It could be your position at work. It could be your family member, you know, the, the position in your family, whatever it is, what you have, the places that you are and the resources that you have are there to help somebody else. And it's proven. This is 100% proven. It's not anecdotal. This is not the generosity guy branding uh, and trying to trying to be cathartic and trying to convince himself that he's a nice guy. This is absolute truth. It's proven that humans have a desire to help other people, and it's naturally put in us. And the devil's advocate or the person on the other side of that might say, I don't believe that because there's some really mean people in this world, or there's um, or, or, or there's people out there who have selfish intentions. And I think that's different. People do have selfish intentions. But what happens is this world today is uh, on the back of my book, there's a statistic over 2,100 times a day we interact with our devices. And that tells me that there's stimulation from all over the place. Um, you guys do it. I love your questions, by the way. This is your, your, your podcast is awesome. It's a live broadcast. It's cool. Um, I have a podcast. There's a million podcasts out there. There's a million TV shows. There's a million places that you can go sources of entertainment. You can scroll through TikTok and go down a rabbit hole for three hours and watch 500 videos. We're overstimulated and that overstimulation distracts us from those most meaningful things. And it makes us believe that we're inadequate and we need more. And so that's why I think there's an issue. And some people may not agree with me uh, that humans have this desire to do better for people because they are distracted and they believe that they're not good enough. And that's absolutely not the case. So, Greg and I are two brilliant, loving men with different skill sets. Mm -hmm. So right now in this moment, (laughs) what could you ask of us that would have you feel like you received our generosity? Ooh, I like that one. Well, first of all, I would say, uh, first of all, I would ask you, what do you think about generosity in my message? Is it, does it resonate with you? And just answering that question would be incredibly generous. Well, I can tell you what keeps coming up for me is uh, Tim, his act of generosity took all 15 minutes. His actual act was probably a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's still impacting your life. And so it comes up a lot for me that we don't know the impact of our positive acts, our acts of generosity and empathy. And as you kind of alluded to just a few minutes ago, um, feeling inadequate or important, I think we can let that go and trust that the impact is far beyond what we will ever know, probably. Yeah, I 
That's great, man. Thank you. And I 100% agree with that. There's so many things. And, I, you know, I could tell you even more things of people that have said, I didn't even realize it. You know, one really quick story. My, my wife's a kindergarten teacher, like I said. She had a kid during the pandemic, hadn't heard from him in years. She taught him in kindergarten, coached him in middle school basketball and volleyball. And he, out of the blue, he got a message from her during the pandemic and said, hey, Mrs. DePasquale, will you come to my graduation? Because you, the, the, some of the lessons that you taught me were so meaningful when I was, you know, when you were coaching me when you were in kindergarten. He actually listed off some things. And she, had, she did not even remember those things. But he remembered it for years after that. So, yeah, what you said is so true. Man. We, you'll never know. You'll never realize the impact that you have. So my response to your question about generosity is I think it is a foundational, energetic expression. It is a through line of what is referred to as we are created in the image of God or the created in the image of the creator. And that generativeness, that is the making Generosity is the making of love. And that in my experience of you, I feel you generating love throughout the world. And I, I am, I highly value that. That is one of my core values. And I, I feel inspiration in this moment. And I feel a call, as I said at the beginning, to be more generous and a recognition that the foundational level of positivity that we experience is a direct result of that, which we give the generous nature of our willingness to create more love. And I am super inspired by our conversation. And I want you to know, you have our email. If there's anything you ever need, please reach out to us. We would be happy to support you and, and to call you part of our social circle and our community. Awesome guys. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel inspired myself. Uh, and I, I'm glad you guys, I glad things resonate and, you know, I've already picked up on a couple of things that you said, so I got to start, uh, I'm going to go back and do my typical note session after this recording is over. So thank you guys. Well, is there anything else you'd like to wrap up with that hasn't been brought up or. Oh, wow. Oh, there's, there's a million things, but I think, okay. So I got to tell this one since you guys kind of inspired me, uh, it'll just be a minute. So when I was going through my treatments, uh, you know, there was like a blur, you know, that, that period of time went by so fast in my life about, uh, four years later, um, my, my wife and I were on a mission trip together and we weren't, we weren't married. So I actually kind of knew who she was. I technically had met her once before on a different trip. Someone, she was coming to visit people and, and I, I ran into her on this, this other trip in 2005 and I was like, Hey, I know you. And so we got to know each other a lot better because we were on the same trip for 12 days. And a group of five of us became really good friends. And we kept in touch even more than the rest of the group. Uh, you typically stay in touch with the rest of the group a lot. But we, we stayed in really close touch. And uh, we were having a conversation. And one of, the other, one of the other girls or ladies in the group you know, kind of knew that me and her were starting to like become a little bit more than friends, even though we were long distance. And so we would have these like more serious conversations. And eventually we decided that, okay, we're going to do this long distance dating thing. And one of these nights we were talking on the phone until real late at night. And she starts telling me the story about this teacher she had that always encouraged or, or the, uh, the fall semester of her junior year of high school. She, he sat the class down. I was like, all right, class, uh, what we're going to do this semester is occasionally we're going to start praying for our future spouse. And 
you know, like this guy is known for being a little quirky, but like highly respected. So like everyone loved Mr. Zill, but they knew he was a little strange. And so everyone in the class, especially like all the 16 year old girls were like, okay, you're nuts, Mr. Zill. Why would I pray for, I'm 16. I'm even thinking about getting married, but he, they went ahead and did it. So for that whole semester, periodically they would pray for their, for their future spouse, not knowing what to expect. So fast forward all those years, my wife and I are now having this conversation or my, I guess my girlfriend at the time, we're having this conversation and she was telling me about this whole scenario. And then I was telling her about what I went through in 2001. She was like, well, I was a junior in high school in 2001 and I, and I'm two years older than her. So we figured out that the time that she was praying for her future spouse was during that whole period of time that I was going through my chemo treatment. And we were like, (laughs) like, wow, what a cool story. Um, so once again, just to reinforce, if, if whether it's teaching a student or giving someone your keys or doing an act of generosity, opening a door for someone for five seconds, or just praying for someone occasionally before you go to sleep or at cl- even in class, you never know the impact on someone's life that you can have. So appreciate the platform. Uh, love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Recording stopped.